Heading into a new year, it's still more COVID deaths and more Trump reality denial. Trying to decide if we're experiencing deja vu on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add me to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 380 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. We had a much more ambitious show planned for this week, but for an assortment of reasons, we were forced to pare down to just two topics. The announcement by West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin that he could not support the Biden Build Back Better bill, which essentially killed the top item on the president's bucket list for his first year. And a farewell to Bob Dole, the former Senate Republican Majority Leader and 1996 GOP presidential nominee, who died earlier this month at the age of 98. Our yearly special, Remembering Those in the Political and Media World We Lost This Year, will be our next program. Okay, it's pop quiz time. So who's topping the Democrats' despise list for 2021? Who gets their black coal for Christmas? If you guess Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson or Kevin McCarthy or Paul Gosar or Mark Meadows or any of the predictable villains, you'd be wrong. It's Joe Manchin. Manchin is, though some may disagree, a Democratic senator from West Virginia who has been causing pain for President Biden and the 50-50 Democratic Senate majority because he has been expressing reservations for months about Biden's Build Back Better program. It's too expensive. It's a budget buster. And what about COVID? Don't forget that, too. You've heard his concerns. And yet for months, the negotiations between the senator and the White House have continued, until he went on Fox News Sunday and said this to anchor Brett Baer. I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. You're done. This is, this is a no. This is a no. The conventional wisdom, the bill was dead. And the White House, the president, the party, everyone heard it first on Fox News Sunday. The reaction, especially from the Democratic left, was predictable. Here was Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders on CNN. Well, I think he's going to have a lot of explaining to do to the people of West Virginia to tell them why he doesn't have the guts to take on the drug companies and lower the cost of prescription drugs why he is not prepared to expand home health care. West Virginia is one of the poorest states in this country. you got elderly people and disabled people who would like to stay at home or forced into nursing homes. He's going to have to tell the people of West Virginia why he doesn't want to expand Medicare to cover dental, hearing, and eyeglasses. And I would have hoped that we could have had at least 50 Democrats on board who have the guts to stand up for working families and take on the lobbyists and the powerful special interest. We have no Republican support. Now, one Republican in the United States Senate, or the House for that matter, is prepared to stand up to the drug companies, or the insurance companies, or the wealthy. I would hope we would have had 50 Democrats. Mm -hmm. But if that is the case, then I hope that we will bring a strong bill to the floor of the Senate as soon as we can, and let Mr. Manchin explain to the people of West Virginia why he doesn't have the guts 
to stand up to powerful special interests. The anger from progressives was so harsh that some are wondering if it could be enough to push Manchin over the edge and join the Republican Party. That scenario has been around for months, and Manchin has always dismissed it. Some 20 years ago, back when there was another 50-50 Senate, the GOP had moved so far to the right that it forced Vermont Republican Jim Jeffords to leave his party. Increasingly, I find myself in disagreement with my party. In order to best represent my state of Vermont, my own conscience and principles I have stood for my whole life, I will leave the Republican Party and become an independent. Jeffords' move briefly put the Democrats in control of the Senate. Could Manchin do the same for the Republicans? Carl Hulse is watching all this as the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times. Merry Christmas, Carl, and uh, welcome <laughs> back to The Political Junkie. Thank you. Happy holidays to you. Thank you. No black call for my friend Carl Hulse, that's for sure. <laughs> Quite a turn of events. Uh, you know, I think you hit it pretty well. The, the reaction particularly from the White House to Manchin, was extraordinary in my view. Uh, you know, you would expect the progressives and Bernie to to light into him, but the way that the White House did, I think shocked a lot of us. Uh, as you know, Ken, uh, you know, trust is the word on Capitol Hill, and senators say, I'm giving you my word, uh, you know, and that's their bond. So to hear the White House challenge uh, Manchin like this and and pretty much straight out say he broke his word to Joe Biden, another former senator who places a big emphasis on keeping your word. It uh, it shocked a lot of us, including uh, the Republicans. Yeah, I agree with you. I think in addition to a fir first, the fact that he went on, he mentioned went on Fox News to, to make the announcement. That was pretty shocking. Yeah, but that this, was a low blow, actually, I thought, too. But to see Jen Psaki go on and say, you know, the breach of his commitments and right. and basically writing him off as a as a potential ally, that seemed very un-Saki, un-Biden-like. Yes, but there's no way that that statement was put out without uh, Joe Biden's approval. Right. So he signed off on it. They really went after Manchin in a way that, you, ju you just don't see it when you need when you need him later, uh, as uh, Mitch McConnell reminded me in an interview this week in the Senate. The uh, most important vote is the next vote. You've got to keep your your uh, enemies close and, and closer when votes are coming. So uh, that that was pretty stunning. Now, whether it, it was enough to get him to change parties, uh, that's a whole different scenario. I was here for the uh, Jeffords party switch, and that was a shocker. This would be also a big shocker. Well, I'm going to get to this party switch in a second, but let me just stick with Manchin. I mean, I'm just wondering if this decision by Manchin was a foregone conclusion from the start, because he said all along that he couldn't sign on to a bill this expensive. Did did people think he was going to change his mind? Well, I think that Joe Manchin's problem has been that he has been all over the place on this bill. Uh, I agree with you. I have had a sneaking suspicion from the beginning that Joe Manchin simply doesn't want to vote for this giant uh, piece of legislation. But he has put some figures out there, you know, one and a half trillion. He has said he can support something like that. He started then objecting to the usual budget gimmicks that were in this bill. Uh, I mean, they are gimmicks, but these are tried and true. They're always put together this way. He's voted for a lot of bills like this with budget gimmicks. So 
to suddenly, uh, you know, find his principles on this is kind of surprising. He says it's inflation. He says it's going to lead to an entitlement society. He's not been very clear. And I think, you know, if he was going to really just be against it, he probably should have done it earlier because now now he's got everybody saying, wait, you you let us, uh, you know, down the primrose path. You weren't operating in good faith. This hasn't really been good for Joe Manchin's uh, reputation, even though it, it certainly gets him a lot of attention. He's the most followed uh, man on Capitol Hill right now, you know, by crowds of reporters who are hanging on his every word. But I don't think this has gone well for Joe Manchin either. I'm just wondering, I mean, you know, we're talking about the possibility that he, he was going to, a no vote from the beginning. How much of it was about coal and clean air and, you know, West Virginia economy? I mean, that had to play a major role in it. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things. Joe Manchin has been talking about his opposition uh, to elements of this bill, but he doesn't really highlight the coal uh, part of that. And one of the reasons is he doesn't want to draw attention to his own uh, support for coal. He's got some uh, personal financial interests in the coal business, even though it's through a, a trust. You know, I think that's part of it. But he has also said that he would support some of the climate change provisions in, in there. He he was for incentives for alternative energy. He just said he didn't want to see conventional energy, coal, gas, oil, penalized. And they took a lot of steps to, to make that happen. So, you know, it's I can't see inside Joe Manchin's mind, but I, I do think that that uh, coal is a big consideration for him. And it's interesting, Ken, you know, West Virginia, they can use some of this money. There's a lot of people who are struggling in yeah. West Virginia. And even voting against this uh, has hurt some uh, – I think medical and pension benefits for coal miners. So he's under some pressure from the unions out there to get back and support it. I don't think this, uh, one of my cardinal rules of Washington is never declare anything dead. I've seen a lot of dead things be resurrected on Capitol Hill. Now, will it be in the form uh, that the House passed? Of course not. It was never really going to be in that form anyway. We'll see if they can get there. Uh, it's going to take some work. Chuck Schumer is now promising that he's going to put it out on the floor and make everybody vote. I'm kind of for that as a longtime Senate reporter. I think the Senate has become very reluctant to vote, both parties. Nobody wants to take these votes. You don't really see big vote showdowns in the Senate. So, you know, put it out there, make people vote. And sometimes you can get to a result that way. You know, you, you think of the gigantic spending bills under FDR, under under Lyndon Johnson, uh, but both presidents had huge Democratic yeah, majorities yeah. in Congress. Um, do you think Biden wrongly read the election results of 2020? I mean, LBJ had 68 Democratic senators after his victory in 1964. Biden has 50. Yeah, it, I, I think that, I don't know that he We've got a majority. We need to take advantage of our majority. You know, we this is our moment. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, people are in a sour mood. We're not going to be in power perhaps for very long. We better go for it. So to me, it's more that they went for it, but they just fell short. They don't because they have no margin for error. Uh, you know, when Biden, uh, when Obama came in, when Biden was vice president, they eventually got to 60 senators for a brief time anyway before uh, Ted Kennedy passed away. 
and they struggled with 60. So with 50, you know it's going to be hard, and it just takes somebody like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema, who is another uh, Democrat who's been resisting here, if they put up their hand and say, stop, you have to stop, because there are no Republican votes, even though they support some of these provisions. They're certainly not going to do anything to help Joe Biden and uh, Chuck Schumer. So I think less to me of a misreading, more of a very aggressive move that just didn't happen. And part of the reason it happened is I don't think, you know, you got a lot of people in the White House. This is a difficult situation. And I'm not sure that they put all the firepower on it that they needed to put on it. Uh, Biden himself was having to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, So it's, uh, you know, and Nancy Pelosi on the other side, she did have a very small majority herself, but she did get the bill through. So, you know, and she'll get through whatever they can come up with if they can get it through the Senate, perhaps. Now, you saw that Nancy Pelosi did not blow up at Joe Biden after this. She came out. You mean Joe Manchin? I mean, Joe Manchin. She probably did want to blow up at Joe Biden. Uh, uh, Joe Manchin after this and came out and said, I know Joe Manchin wants what's right for the people of West Virginia. You know, we're going to get there. So she played it very differently than the White House uh, and some of the other Democrats did. Well, I can't I can't help but think of the changes in West Virginia. I mean, the, the back back in the day, there was never except for maybe Arch Moore. There was never a Republican member of Congress from West Virginia. Now it's it's I, I, right after Wyoming. It was oh, Trump's yeah. best state. It's an unbelievably Republican state. Yeah, it's just hardcore. And I think uh, the thinking on Capitol Hill is there was some sense at the beginning that maybe Joe Manchin wasn't going to run for re-election, even, you know, popular in that state, he was going to have a tough time. But I think the sense now is that Senator Manchin is interested in running for re-election in 2024. And a lot of this is just uh, being done with that in mind. He needs to somehow uh, find a way for a Democrat to get elected uh, in what's become an overwhelmingly Republican state, certainly by ideology, if not by voter registration. You know, you wrote in Wednesday's Times about uh, that Mitch McConnell had once again invited Manchin to switch parties. And I mean, I don't know if it was serious. I don't know if it was just gamesmanship, you know, stirring up trouble. I think is the way you wrote it. Um, But you quoted McConnell as saying this. Why in the world would they want to call him a liar and try to hotbox him and embarrass him? That's a fair question. Yeah, I think Mitch McConnell isn't surprised by a lot of things that go on in Washington, but he was surprised by this. He couldn't believe it. He was pretty uh, candid with me saying, why would they want to anger and irritate this person that they need? He told me a story about when Lisa Murkowski uh, broke with the Republicans and opposed Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court, that he immediately went over there and said, I get it, Lisa. Hey, we're all on the same team. Nobody's going to hold this against you. So he would have played it completely differently. Now, he's gone after Joe Manchin for a long time. He's been trying to get him to switch parties, says it makes sense. I think he realized that Manchin probably was never going to do that. But I also think he was looking at this situation going, all right, well, maybe this is the time. So you see in those quotes that he gave to me, it's like Joe Manchin your party doesn't want you, you'll be much more comfortable with us, that sort of thing. So maybe this is a moment, maybe not. Uh, More likely, 
not. But you never know uh, with these things. And uh, but I also think Mitch McConnell does just like to, uh, you know, poke, poke at the bear and the Democrats. And if he can get Manchin thinking about something like this, that's just better for him. But, you know, when you have the progressives, especially in the House, you saw them in the House basically daring Manchin to switch parties or saying that he's a you know, he's a traitor and things like that. Right. They have to know that he switches parties and the um, Biden agenda is gone. It's over. Yeah, well. It's kind of over now. And, you know, a lot of them, so many of them, I think, had been biting their tongue, tongues uh, throughout this whole thing. And that was the moment they just said, oh, I can't take it anymore, uh, you know, accusing him of breaking his word. Now, uh, the progressives, you know, they have a reason to complain. They made a deal with President Biden, uh, basically, uh, that they would go ahead and support the infrastructure bill, let it pass, you know. These were tied together to keep leverage on Biden. But they accepted President Biden's promise that uh, if they let the infrastructure bill and go and become law, which they did do, that he and Biden were in agreement on a framework and they they would get this other bill. And so far, that hasn't happened. So, you know, in some ways, you can't blame them for being mad whether or not they're approaching this strategically from the best spot is another question. Can you think of one senator in the recent past, or maybe not the not-so-recent past, who had such power, who had such influence? I mean, I don't remember anyone spending much time focusing on Jeffords before he switched in 2001. But Manchin, as you said earlier, he's been in the headlines every day Biden has been in the White House. Yeah, he. this is probably a pretty unique situation, and, and part of it is due to our new media environment. Jeffords was interesting. Uh, He was a low-key person, and while there wasn't a lot of attention on him, Harry Reid was certainly putting attention on him behind the scenes at that point to get him to switch. You know, Ben Nelson, during the uh, some of the Obama negotiations, he, he sort of had this same kind of clout because you really couldn't do anything without him or maybe without Mary Landrew from Louisiana. So they had it. But the thing about, uh, say, Ben Nelson, who I covered and wrote about this year, uh, saying he used to, he was uh, Joe Manchin back in 2009 and 2010. The thing about Ben Nelson is you always knew he was going to get to a deal, though. He was just going to extract as much as he could for his state or whatever constituents he was working for, and he was going to do it. At the end of the day, you could be pretty confident you could make a deal with Ben Nelson, and he ended up not running for re-election. With Manchin, I haven't felt that way. It's not like you know you're going to get to yes. It's like, can you get to yes? So, you know, he's been a tough nut to crack. Uh, but I don't know that he had a sense of how his opposition could make him a national villain in the Democratic eyes. And I think these last few days, have probably been a bit of a rude awakening to him. I, I think he knew he could catch some grief. I don't know that he knew he was going to catch grief from the White House, the unions, uh, a, a lot of people in his party on Capitol Hill. I think he's pro- probably been surprised by the outpouring. And he, he said some of that on a radio interview in West Virginia, where he said, you know, they, they think they can pressure me. And, I'm from West Virginia. I'm not going to be that guy. But he's got he's got tough days ahead himself. You know, I know he was close with Robert Byrd, and of course Robert Byrd is gone. But is there anyone who could have or 
or should have reached out to like Jay Rockefeller to see if he knew what would have ta- would have what would have brought Manchin on board? I think that Biden thought he was that person, you know, a colleague from the Senate, you know, Scranton Joe, somebody who could relate to uh, Manchin from West Virginia. I, I I think that I do think that you've seen Democrats increasingly bring up Robert Byrd when they talk to Manchin or about Manchin. Because Manchin portrays Robert Byrd as this great protector of the Senate as an institution, and you know you can't tinker with the Senate. Well, guess what? Robert Byrd tinkered with the Senate a lot when it suited him. Uh, He was willing to make changes, and I think they've been trying to impress upon Joe Manchin that his his vision of Robert Byrd may not line up exactly with the actual Robert Byrd of history and what he did when he was in the Senate. The fact remains that the, the, the White House still needs a mansion on things like voting rights. And do you think these harsh comments are risking pushing him away from from everything? Or you think there's still hope that the White House can still, as Joe Biden has said, that they can still work something out with the senator from West Virginia? I, I think it, it, they, you know, they risk pushing him away. There's also an argument you could make that, well, maybe if you can't get mansion on this, He'd want to cave on another item, such as voting rights, which is the other big thing hanging out there. Now, they're trying to get him and Senator Sinema to go along with some rules changes next month uh, to move this voting rights bill forward. Manchin, oddly, has been in recent days more open to some changes than Senator Sinema, I think. So he, he seems to be moving a little bit on voting rights and changing the rules in the Senate on that. But I don't think it I don't think it helps your relationship with someone when you run around and say he was a traitor and he lied to us and he broke his word and no one can ever say again he's a man of his word, right? Because you know, who who knew exactly what those commitments were and how clear they were? Uh, so you, you have to be careful in this situation. It's going to be a really interesting January. It sure will be. Uh, maybe there'll be a Build Back Better light, possibly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can uh, rejigger this bill. The, the question is then, will the House progressives take it? Chuck Schumer, though, told me earlier this year, I think I reported this quote somewhere, anything we get is better than nothing. So we'll see if people actually feel that way when they find out, you know, what kind of bill could pass. Is that anything better than nothing? I don't know. Carl Hulse is the chief Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Carl, um, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you and your family, and and thanks for being Carl Hulse. <laughs> yeah, th- thanks for having me. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and uh, hunker down. You know, I hope 2022 is better, but... Uh, I think we've got a ways to go early in the year. I think we know better. Carl, thanks a lot. (laughs) Thanks, Ken. And now, our farewell to Bob Dole. First, we'll start out with some audio memories. The Kansas Republican was first elected to Congress in 1960. Eight years later, he moved up to the Senate. 
Bob Dole knows Kansas. He'll represent your views in the U.S. Senate. Elect Republican Bob Dole, your senator. He was overwhelmingly elected in Rock Rib, Republican Kansas, but after a brief turn as GOP national chairman and the resignation of President Nixon, he almost fell to the widespread anti-Republican sentiment during the Watergate midterm election of 1974. That year, he ran some harsh ads against his Democratic opponent, Congressman Bill Roy. Kansans don't want federal government controls in their lives, but Bill Roy didn't get the message. The truth is, he's not listening to you because he's too busy listening to the eastern big city politicians who want him in the Senate. I don't think the people in Kansas will send anyone to the U.S. Senate for six years just because George Meany wants another senator. Bob Dole is a senator who cares about Kansas, and he hears what we're saying. Dole barely held on to win a second term. Two years later, he was rewarded with this offer from President Gerald Ford. I'm extremely proud to introduce to you Senator Bob Dole of the great state of Kansas as my running mate for victory in 1976. In this clip, in a most emotional moment, Dole was thanking the people of Russell, Kansas, who stayed with him through all his difficulties when he broke down. If I have done anything, it's because of people I have known up and down Main Street, and I can recall the time when, when I needed help, uh, the people of Russell helped. And I think... <laughs> Bob Dole never forgot where he came from. Ford had hoped that Dole would be the conservative answer that the ticket needed that year to defeat Jimmy Carter. But Dole was mostly remembered during that campaign for what was seen as a nasty comment during his VP debate with Walter Mondale when he basically attributed the deaths of American soldiers to, quote, Democrat wars. It all began with a panelist's question about Ford's pardon of Nixon. Senator Dole, 10 days ago when Senator Mondale raised the issues of Watergate and the Nixon pardon, you called it the start of the campaign mudslinging. Two years ago when you were running for the Senate, you said that the pardon was prematurely granted and that, it was a, and that it was a mistake. You were quoted by the Kansas City Times as saying, you can't ignore our tradition of equal application of the law. Did you approve of the Nixon pardon when President Ford granted it? You approve of it now, and if the issue was fair game in your 1974 campaign in Kansas, why is it not an appropriate topic now? It is an appropriate topic, I guess, but it's not a very good issue any more than the war in Vietnam would be or... World War II or World War I or the war in Korea, all Democrat wars, all in this century. I figured up the other day, if we added up the killed and wounded in Democrat wars in this century, it would be about 1.6 million Americans, enough to fill the city of Detroit. Now, if we want to go back and rake that over and over and over, we can do that. I assume Senator Mondale doesn't want to do that. But it seems to me that the pardon of Richard Nixon is behind us. Watergate's behind us. That was the moment where Dole and Hatchet Man became synonymous among Democrats. But Bob Dole continued to move up in Republican ranks. His bid for the 1980 presidential nomination went nowhere. But in 1984, with Howard Baker's retirement, Dole became the Senate Majority Leader. And in 1988, he made a more serious bid for the presidency, where his chief rival for the nomination was Vice President George Bush. What's the difference? 
Bob Dole led the fight to save Social Security. George Bush had nothing to do with it. Bob Dole pushed President Reagan's tax cuts through the Senate. George Bush had nothing to do with it. Bob Dole is leading the fight to ratify President Reagan's INF Treaty while making sure the Russians don't cheat. George Bush has nothing to do with it. Bob Dole will make a difference for America. The difference is leadership. Dole for president. In the Iowa caucuses, Dole won, with Bush finishing third. But he lost to Bush in what turned out to be a very bitter New Hampshire primary. That night, with both candidates on NBC News at the same time, but in separate locations, Tom Brokaw asked each of them if they had messages for the other. Mr. Vice President, if you look right down at that monitor, you'll see the man that you beat tonight. That's uh, Senator Bob Dole, who is standing by in his headquarters. Anything you'd like to say to him at this point? No, just wish him well and meet him in the South. And Senator Dole, is there anything you'd like to say to the Vice President? Yeah, stop lying about my record. Eight years later, in 1996, with the Republicans in control of both the House and Senate, Dole ran again for the nomination, and this time he won it. He gave a good acceptance speech at the convention in San Diego. He gave a gracious concession speech after he lost to President Clinton in November. But to me, his best speech, probably ever, was the one he gave that June when he decided to leave the Senate, which had been his home for nearly three decades, an institution which he treasured. And I don't want my friends in the press gallery to fall out of their seats in shock. But let me add that acknowledging those who have worked here in this building, I also salute you. And I think it's fair to say that we didn't always agree with everything you said or wrote. But I know that what you do off this floor is as vital to American democracy as anything we do on it. And we have to keep that in mind. So I would say that it's been a great ride few bumps along the way. I've learned a lot from people in this room. I've even gone to Senator Byrd when I was the majority leader to ask his advice on how to defeat him on an issue. <laughs> and if you know Robert Byrd as I do, he gave me the answer. <laughs> but it wasn't easy. I mean, this man's determined. And I know that in his book, and he's a great works about the Senate, in the first book, when I became the majority leader, he very candidly writes in his book, he had his doubts about this Bob Dole, because I might be too partisan, or I might not work with a minority leader. But as I've heard him say a number of times since, I demonstrated that I wasn't that partisan, and B, that I understood, if I understood one thing, as my successor will understand, is that unless the two leaders are working together, nothing's going to happen in this place. We have to trust each other, as Senator Daschle and I have, as Senator Mitchell and I have, as Senator Byrd and I have, and I had also great respect for Senator Mansfield, Senator Baker. And I would say to all those who've been in the leadership positions, it's a difficult life. And after 2 o'clock today, when somebody calls me about bringing up their amendment, I'll say, sorry with me. <laughs> I just listened to that speech this week. 
It was vintage Bob Dole. Love of country, love of politics, love of an institution that, quite honestly, no longer exists. Here's what follows on this week's program. I had the honor of speaking with former Senator Alan Simpson of Wyoming two days after Dole's death earlier this month. Simpson had been the Republican whip under Dole for 10 years, from 1984 to 1994. After I play that interview, I'm going to replay two conversations about Dole I had back in 2014 about his decision to leave the Senate. The first is with Sheila Burke, who for many years was Dole's chief of staff. And the second is with Walt Riker, who was Dole's longtime Senate press secretary. When Howard Baker, the Senate Majority Leader from Tennessee, decided to retire in 1984, it threw open the entire leadership team for the Republicans. Elected GOP leader in a five-way race was Bob Dole, and Wyoming's Alan Simpson was elected Republican whip, replacing Ted Stevens, who was among those seeking to become leader. While Dole had a very tough fight to win his post, it was easier for Simpson, who was widely popular with lawmakers and reporters and was widely respected for his legislative skills. The Republicans lost their majority only two years later, and two years after that, Dole sought the presidency, losing the nomination to Vice President George Bush. And in 1992, the GOP lost the presidency as well, as then-President Bush was defeated by Bill Clinton. Throughout it all, Dole and Simpson had an excellent working relationship. But by 1994, Republicans had had enough of being in the minority. And that was especially true in the House, where the GOP last had a majority in 1954, 40 years earlier. The Republican sweep of 94 was credited less to Dole, who once again became majority leader, than to Newt Gingrich, the bomb thrower from Georgia, who was elected speaker. While Gingrich was offering his contract with America, Dole was more tentative about what he planned to do in the Senate. But many of his colleagues shared Gingrich's impatience. Even though Dole was re-elected leader without opposition, Simpson was ousted as whip by Trent Lott, the Mississippi senator who played up his close ties to Gingrich and shared his sharp-elbow brand of politics. Dole endorsed Simpson for another term, but it wasn't enough. Lot 27, Simpson 26. A victory for confrontation over Dole's more measured style. Senator Simpson joins us to talk about his friend Bob Dole and the kind of Republican he was. Senator, as always, it's wonderful having you back on The Political Junkie. Ken, I remember our visit in the first uh, time I met you in uh, Detroit at the Republican National Convention, and I thought, I don't think I'm ever going to shake that guy. <laughs> no, I, 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 no, let me tell you, Bob Dole, Bob Dole was, uh, well, my service to him as assistant was the finest t- 10 years I've had in public life. He was, he was a marvelous Man, uh, I was in the military. I was in the infantry. He, he of, of course, was proven uh, combat veteran. I never got into that. I was in Germany at the end of the Army of Occupation. But I just said to him, you know, you were you really a leader. And, and uh, I was taught in the Army to follow my leaders. And you're one of the best. And uh, if you're going over, you, you go over the hill, I'll go right there with you. Uh, and don't have to worry about you uh, getting getting footsteps behind you because I'm not interested in the job. I'm perfectly happy. 
and uh, we had we had a great staff. His staff, my staff, worked well together. But the joy of, of the, the the pleasure of his company was uh, the fact that he he trusted me. Uh, he he had he had uh, a minor failing. He didn't swear much, and he would say. Why don't you go swear at Senator So and So? I can do that. I have all the all the ability to do that. And uh, he would line up the votes, and I would follow up. Uh, he had a he had a genial way and, and a tough way. He was a partisan, and he he loved partisanship. We had a lot of fun, and we would work together. We'd just say, Dole would say, you know, find out what the hell is happening over there. They think that uh, that Jesse Helms is up to something, and then on our side we'd think that uh, somebody else was up to something over there. Uh, anyway, it was a smooth operation, and uh, I was very proud to be part of it. And uh, we made things work. There were there were editorials written about a, a new civility, a new a new uh, feeling of the in the Senate with Dole and Simpson in charge, and, and we love that. But the, the the real thing that made us both very, uh, I think, to some successful, we were both legislators. Legislating is the driest form of human endeavor. You're given uh, an issue, you you draft something, you amend it. Uh, you take it to the floor. You manage it on the floor. Dole and I, old Robert Dole and I, knew how to legislate, how to get things done. We worked on immigration reform. We looked on nuclear regulation. We looked on veterans issues, uh, and uh, you know, it was uh, and nuclear uh, with Jer- with Gary Hart. We worked with the other side. And 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 the 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 boneheaded idea that you you are going to have purity in your party and stick together, that might be the destruction of America. You know, I've thought a lot about this over the last couple of days, talking about he was truly a master of the Senate. Do you think? Do you think he would have made a good president? Yes, I would. I, I did. There was just an uh, there was a, an internal mechanism. Of, of, of political awareness, astuteness, and uh, not cunning. A lot of them were cunning, but he was uh, he was adroit and knew uh, people knew where he was coming from. There was no slipshod activity. You know, you were on this program not that long ago talking about your relationship with the late George Bush. Uh, your family and his had been uh, close forever. Where did you come down on the Bush versus Dole battle for the nomination in 1988? That had to have been a tough choice for you if you did indeed make a choice. Did you pick a side then or did you stay out of it? I stayed out of that one right there because, uh, you know, I was I was I was the acting leader of the U.S. Senate. When they were running against each other, I remember Dole accusing Bush of lying about his record. And I remember and I remember people on Bush's staff blaming Dole for the defeat of the Ford Dole ticket in 76. I mean, so there was definitely bad blood there. But but how was Dole as a Bush ally once Bush was in the White House? The roll call votes have been assessed and uh, regurgitated. And the finding was 
that Bob Dole supported President George Bush more than any other member of the party, including me. That says a lot about uh, loyalty to the party and getting things done. Well, it says a lot about Dole. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the, the, the horrific injuries he suffered in Italy and and the pain he, uh, you know, endured nearly his entire life. Um, but I, I think I asked that question because you and I are talking today, uh, uh, December 7th, the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Do you have memories of that day? <laughs> I was going to call a buddy of mine. I was going to call one to Norm Maneva. I say, Norm, we're both 90. And we we met as 12-year-old boys in a Japanese internment camp in Wyoming. He was behind barbed wire with guard towers and, and church lights. And I was a little kid, Cody, 11. So on December 7th, they came to his house. And they said, uh, we want to interview you and his father. They, they knew where they were on that day or the next day. Norm relates that with, not with pain, because Norm is like uh, Mandela and Robbins Island. He has no bitterness toward his toward his country, and he proved that and proves it every day with serving two presidents. And uh, so I'm going to call both those cats. And uh, with the other guy was a kid that lived in a shack up on the hill where I'm sitting about mm, a mile away. And, he came over. He was a great prevaricator. He was always telling great stories about bears that had eaten his homework and, you know, <laughs> things like that um, and crept into his house. And he came down. He said, the Japanese have a packed your Pearl Harbor. And my mother came out and said, Jackie, now just stop that. We don't do we, you. We do. You carry it in. Carry on. He said, "No, Mrs. Simpson, go in, go in the house." And Mr. President Roosevelt is telling what happened, boy. And back in the house, Mom went, and and, I, and that was, I goes almost this hour, and it's in a warmer day. Well, I remember, and I was 11 years old. You never forget those. You might, and you forget that you you remember when when Franklin Roosevelt died or Kennedy was assassinated, those days are in your head. Well, that leads to another question. I mean, we always say, remember Pearl Harbor, and then we also say, remember 9-11, and remember January 6th. I, I, I think my point is, we keep telling each other to remember such horrors, but, but in the end, do we really learn anything from it? Well, we're going to find out. <laughs> I want to... I want to live long enough to see uh, to see what happens, and it's all it's all going to happen at the ballot box. And uh, uh, there there's so strange things going on with this. Uh, well, with Trump, you have to just you have to throw him in the mac in the mix. Uh, and there are people out here who hate Trump. I hate Biden. They don't dislike people or they're not disappointed in them. They, they hate. hate their gut. And 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 they're they're see, they're called seethers. I like to stay with the seekers instead of the seethers and they give off an aroma of of hatred. 
and we've got one, uh, and that's the guy at Morrow Logo who uh, sits down there and and uh, filled with revenge, revenge, revenge against Cheney, revenge against anybody that was against him, revenge, ridicule, hatred, uh, suspicion, twisted lies, you know. And uh, that either gets cleaned up in the next uh, few years or America's headed for the bow-wows. Well, that, that's my fear, too. I mean, when you have somebody like a Kevin McCarthy who fears that Liz Cheney, a very conservative Republican, fears that Liz Cheney is more of a threat to the party than Paul Gosar or Marjorie Taylor Greene, that's lunacy. Well, that's, you know, she, she was with Trump 93% of the time. And then you have uh, McCarthy, who is refusing to uh, to discipline his own troops just because of fear, fear and awe and and terror <laughs> about about the big big guy with the big hair. I'm glad you're smiling because it it, it scares it. It's really it frightens me. Anyway, Alan Simpson. But Kim. Ken, you're a Democrat. You have to admit that. I'm a Republican, and I'm terrified, too. Tell me one thing I've ever said that makes you think I'm a Democrat. Oh, I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's just the look on your face. <laughs> Is that the look you had when we met in 1980 at the Republican National Convention? <laughs> That's right. I think I lost, I couldn't find my car, and you had a kind of a Democrat smile on your face, like... I put a Tino Roncalio bumper sticker on your car. Alan Simpson is a former three-term senator from Wyoming. For 10 years, he served as the Republican whip under Bob Dole, the Republican leader. Alan, thank you as always, my friend, for being on the program and, and sharing your memories of a great American hero. Thank you, Ken, and thank doing what, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, it's critical that you're you're there in the mix, and you're doing these podcasts. And you... well, just don't just don't ever call me a Democrat again, okay? Please. I, I will call you an independent. That's better. Want, an unaffiliated. Wandering, wandering around in the Republican convention with a badge. Next is my conversation with Dole's longtime chief of staff, Sheila Burke, from seven years ago on the anniversary of Dole's decision to leave the Senate. And that's followed by a chat I had with Walt Riker, Dole's former press secretary, also from 2014. If you watch Dole's farewell speech, and I did that, I did this week, people, people can see you laughing and brushing a tear from your eye at the same time. That was the kind of speech it was, and I think that was the kind of man Bob Dole was and is. There's no question. It was a, uh, a bittersweet moment. Uh, it was, uh, I know, an enormously difficult decision uh, for him, and it was an enormously difficult transition for all of us who had had the privilege of working for him for so many years as I did. Uh, we were at a point in history where we knew we were seeing the departure from the Senate of one of its great leaders. Uh, it was a decision he came to, I think, after great thought. Uh, but I think we all viewed it as a tremendous loss for the institution. And I believe that was true uh, by both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, we're watching someone who was, in fact, a true legislator really um, making that transition out of the body. Do you agree with my assessment that he basically had to leave the Senate or at least had to leave as majority leader, given 
the feeling about Congress uh, and 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 how it affected his race against President Clinton? Well, you know, I think there were a host of reasons that um, that the senator made the decision. Um, certainly, uh, the conflict of time. Uh, as we all know, certainly then, but even more so today, uh, running for president is in fact a full-time job, as is being the majority leader of the United States Senate. And I think he was torn. Uh, he, at his heart, was a legislator. I think he uh, instinctively got deeply involved in the subject matter at hand and uh, always wanted to be in the middle of trying to drive consensus. And that is a difficult thing to do when you are on the road. It also gave the opportunity to the Democrats uh, to position or attempt to position him on difficult issues uh, because he was, in fact, his party spokesperson. Uh, and so I think there was no question that it was uh, a question of where his loyalties would be and where his time was needed. And I believe the campaign uh, convinced him. And I think he came to the conclusion that you couldn't do both jobs well. Tell us what the Senate meant to Bob Dole and, and, and what Bob Dole meant to the Senate. Gosh, I mean, I think his own words that we just heard gave you a sense of the uh, importance he placed on the institution and on his responsibilities uh, representing the state of Kansas, which he loves deeply. Uh, as you probably know, he's in the midst of touring all 109 counties in Kansas. As we speak, as he approaches his 91st birthday, uh, I think, uh, to say farewell because of the commitment and support they gave him, but also I think the acknowledgement of what he did for Kansas. Uh, I think the institution of the Senate is one uh, built on relationships. Uh, it's one built on the ability of individuals to build and drive the consensus. And I think he was a master at that. Uh, and so I think uh, for him, the institution was uh, the art of the ability to get things done. Uh, and I think the institution viewed him as one of those people who, in fact, could do that, could uh, build consensus, could reach across the aisle uh, where necessary. And uh, I think people viewed him on both sides of the aisle as being unbelievably skilled, but it was an enormously important uh, place for him and one that he holds with deep respect. He was not ashamed to talk about compromise. He was not ashamed about getting things done, as you say. But there were a lot of recent examples, uh, Eric Cantor's defeat among them, that, that compromise has suddenly become a dirty word on Capitol Hill. I think that's right, and I think he views that with great sadness. I mean, if you look at that speech that day, the instances that he mentioned where, in fact, they were able to come together. Obviously, one of the most well-known is his ability with Senator Pat Moynihan, uh, another extraordinary leader in the Senate, uh, to drive consensus on saving Social Security. Uh, that is one of many uh, food stamps with George McGovern, the development of the hospice benefit. Uh, I mean, there were there's a long list of, uh, you know, opportunities that presented themselves where he drove uh, or participated in a, a real attempt to try and drive consensus. I think he saw his job as being a legislator. He was certainly partisan. Uh, there is no question about his having been a real Republican, uh, but I think he saw the importance for both parties uh, to essentially put the country first and where necessary and possible to reach consensus on difficult issues. You mentioned that he's a partisan. Um, there's always been harsh descriptions of Dole as a, as a strong partisan, a hatchet man we heard after the 76 campaign. He was angry. You've known him for decades. Who, who was Bob Dole? Who is Bob Dole? I, I think Bob Dole is a patriot. 
I think he is someone who throughout his life, whether it was in public service, whether it was in his service in the military, uh, whether it was being, you know, an attorney in Kansas, uh, I think he is someone who at the end of the day is a patriot. I think he puts his country first. Uh, There is no question that he is a party man as well. Um, And, you know, and he would talk about, you know, building consensus doesn't mean that you don't hold dear uh, the politics of your own party and the views of your own party, but it also doesn't prevent you from trying to reach an agreement when there's an important issue at hand. Um, so I, I view him as uh, someone who put country first. Sheila Burke is the former chief of staff to Senator Bob Dole. She's currently a senior policy advisor at Baker Donaldson and a research professor at Georgetown University's Public Policy Institute. Sheila Burke, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much, and and join me in wishing an early happy birthday to Bob Dole. He'll turn twenty. He'll turn ninety one next month. Thanks so much. We we sure will. Thank you. Bye bye. Walt Riker was Dole's press secretary from nineteen eighty one to nineteen ninety three. He was with Dole during his chairmanship of the Senate Finance Committee, Senate Majority as well as Senate Minority Leader, and during his nineteen eighty eight presidential campaign. Walt Riker, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be on uh, with America's most most knowledgeable political junkie, Ken Rudin. Oh, God. Could you keep saying that over and over again, please? You know, um, when, I, when I hear Bob Dole's voice, I hear Kansas and I hear the Senate. It was hard to tell the two Bob Doles apart. You know, the, just hearing that again, I hadn't heard that in a long, long time. Uh, it's so powerful. brings it all back. And, uh, you know, really, to be honest with you, I, I've, thought about this in, in light of uh, all the politics that's gone on since. And I would say the day that uh, Dole walked out of the Senate, which is, the, you know, on this state, the Senate it literally has never been the same. Uh, it doesn't operate the same. It doesn't have the same kind of leadership. And frankly, uh, what I see on both sides of the aisle, there, there, there's no stature, credibility, or respect for the Senate that Dole engendered and, and, and lived, uh, you know, every day on the floor of the Senate. And uh, he's, he's tremendously missed because he was a true leader, uh, someone who, yes, had uh, very strong uh, ideological, uh, you know, beliefs, always looked for a winning hand, but at the same time uh, was a master uh, at negotiating uh, what I would call fairness and uh, respect for, for all people in the Senate. Well, you know, he, he was never ashamed to talk about compromise. He was never ashamed to talk about fairness or reaching across the aisle. And yet what we saw happen this week uh, with Eric Cantor's defeat, you know, especially, that the, the, the word compromise is, is, is almost like a dirty word. Yeah, you know, the, the way I see it is that um, the rules of the game have changed in the Senate, and I think people should should really pay attention to that because when Bob Dole was there and you had – uh, majority leaders George Mitchell, Democrat, Majority Leader Robert Byrd, Democrat, I could l- name others. Um, you know, it was hardball politics. It was partisan to the core. I mean, that's what it, politics is all about. Nobody goes to the Senate to be, you know, um, neutral. That partisanship is at the heart and soul of American politics. It's what makes democracy work. But at the same time, when you're um, engaged in your partisan politics, there were rules of the game in the Senate that everybody understood, like a, like a game of chess. You know, there weren't any moves that were, were you know, not in a rule book, and you had to work in that kind of arcane system, but it all worked 
because everybody was kind of a master of the rules. They knew how to get things done within that rule and, and, and pay attention to it and respect it. But what you see now is, at least what I see, is there are no rules. They've been left behind. Um, uh, uh, the, the Democrats who run, run the, uh, the Senate now are more like totalitarians, in, in my view. I mean, there's no respect for the law uh, or the rules of the Senate, and I think that's really sad. But, you know, when Dole was there with Byrd, they worked together. When Dole was there with Mitchell, they worked together. Um, there were some tremendous partisan battles, I mean, epic that went on for days, you know, into the night and everything else. But at the end of the day, there was always a result. And, uh, you know, Dole, you know, his philosophy was let's start with a winning hand. You know, he, he didn't come to the table like let's make a deal and, and everybody gets in a room and they all start, you know, trading things. No, it doesn't work that way. Dole would come to the floor with a very strong hand, a lot of votes, a lot of strategy, a lot of media attention, whatever it took, and then reach across the aisle and say, look, this is where I'm coming from. You know, who wants to join me? And, uh, you know, we had uh, an open, opened, uh, open doors for Democrats, liberal Democrats, conservatives, whoever they were, and work within that confine, but yet at the end of the day get results that people actually walked away with something rather than this kind of partisan totalitarianism that's just all politics all the time that you see now. What's your fondest memory of Bob Dole? You know, I spent uh, 13 years with Bob Dole, literally 24-7, spent more time with him than probably my own father, if he had up all the minutes, and uh, traveled around the world together. And uh, i tell you what, two things. One, I never stopped looking at him as a war hero. You know, he, he suffered, you know, grievous injuries um, in Italy in, in World War II, left for dead on the battlefield. And to see how he overcame his own disability, couldn't use his right arm, the stamina that he had, the, the way he you know, taught himself to write left-handed. I mean, he was an, an everyday inspiration to me uh, just to see, see his unbelievable uh, physical stamina and determination. It's, it's just it's incredible, a true war hero. And then secondly, literally, uh, you know, Bob Dole is the funniest man I've ever been around. If you're around him 24/7 like I was, he had those one-liners and the, 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 you know, the quick wit. You'd see something and it, you know, fire off some rapid thing, and you know, it was it was like Johnny Carson. I mean, he was a, a truly you know gifted comedian. Yes, it had a sharp edge to it. If you were a staff member, sometimes it was a little too sharp, but uh, you know, it was the big leagues. I worked in the big leagues for 13 years with a major, major political figure. I mean, a Hall of Famer, um, in my view, of tremendous stature and the kind of person we just don't see these days, to tell you the truth. Walt Riker was a former press secretary to Bob Dole. After leaving Capitol Hill, he spent 17 years at McDonald's, not in line for a burger, but as the vice president of global media relations. Walt, it's great to talk to you again, and, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Ken. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. You just heard my conversations with former Senator Alan Simpson, Dole's number two in the Senate, which was recorded earlier this month, two days after Dole's passing. And then two chats with former Dole aides Sheila Burke and Walt Riker, recorded back in 2014, about Dole's decision to quit the Senate in order to campaign for the presidency full-time in 1996. Bob Dole died on December 5th, at the age of 98. And so this is Christmas.
That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, complaints? Send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at the Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please have a happy and safe new year. It's got to get better, right? I'll see you soon. Oh.